0: Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Baniasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Jason Lauritsen is the Chief Conservation Officer for the Florida Wildlife Corridor, where he and his colleagues are helping to connect, protect, and restore essential conservation habitat throughout the state of Florida. We discussed the vision for the corridor, the various stakeholders, the biggest threats facing habitat connectivity in Florida, Jason's experience working at Audubon Corkscrew Swamp, and some general thoughts relating to the land ethic. Head to floridawildlifecorridor.org to see some of their expedition films, which we mentioned, and to explore maps of the corridor. I'm joined today by Jason Lauritsen of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. Jason, how are you, man?
1: Doing good. Thanks, Dylan. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk with you. This is uh, way out of my wheelhouse over here in Colorado. This is a whole new kind of uh corner of the country that I haven't focused on a whole lot and uh there's some awesome work happening over there so I'm really I'm really interested to hear from you.
1: Good. Yeah, well it's it's uh, always a pleasure to talk with folks about Florida and what's going on here from a landscape conservation standpoint. So thanks for paying attention to us.
0: Yeah, you know, I actually I was born in that part of the country and lived in uh the Tampa Bay area until I was like 5. So okay. I have very early memories of uh of uh, of alligators and yeah. uh, cypress trees and and um, Bok Tower Gardens and stuff, but oh, yeah, uh, right. Well, for the listeners, could you introduce yourself and your your position with Florida Wildlife Corridor?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, again, Jason Lowertson. I'm the Chief Conservation Officer for the Florida Wildlife Corridor Foundation. We're a, we're a nonprofit organization. Um, just generally speaking, our mission is to help protect this large landscape throughout the state. You know, we're not owning the land, we're just working with a wide variety of partners to try to get protections that will link some of those properties together and as chief conservation officer, I uh, do a lot of outreach to a variety of stakeholders trying to uh, get people to understand and to uh, to commit.
0: Yeah. It's a it's a really big vision and it's one that constitutes at least looking at the maps that you all have produced constitutes a lot of different sort of land use types and, uh, stakeholders. So I'm really interested in that dynamic. Like what, what are those sort of land usages and, um, ownerships across
1: the corridor? Yeah, well, um, you're right. It's big, uh, 18 million acres. Just want to start right there. Um, and, that's that's hard for most people to get their head around uh this 18 million acre landscape and and i I just i just want to juxtapose that with the population i i I grew up in iowa so i'm not a native floridian and uh spent time um getting to know my grandparents farm you know and i had these relatively wide open spaces you're in colorado so i mean you get the whole wide open spaces thing and uh, moving to Florida and seeing a a population of, we're we're right around 21 million people uh, right now. And uh, it's a pretty populous state. So you've got masses of people, you have lots of traffic, you have tourists coming in to visit some of these fantastic places. And then you've got this wild part of Florida, which a lot of folks don't know. So back to Back to your question about the different landscapes that 18 million acre footprint intercepts, um, you've got you got forest lands. Uh, the northern part of the state is well known for its forests. You've got the Ocala National Forest, the Osceola National Forest. There are these big patches of federal land that have been in conservation for a long time, uh, and you've got this network of state parks and state forests as well. Um, as you move further south. Uh, you get to this nice high and dry sandy ridge area lake wells ridge right there in the middle and that's a place where you're going to start to see a lot of orange groves popping up Uh, so you got forests you got orange groves you got these really unique habitats in there and again everywhere you've got neighborhoods and towns uh, continuing on south the area is really marked by uh, those cypress forests and you get these slough systems and um, if you've If you've not heard of the Everglades, I'm not sure what planet you're living on, Uh, but the Everglades has this beautiful term coined by um, uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas years ago, about the river of grass. So you've got this this big glades system over in the southeastern part of the state. And as you move further to the Southwest, that glade system gets interspersed with these cypress sloughs. And you got this slough and glade sort of mix there uh, where you go kind of go back to that forested, but forested wetland landscape. And so that's mm. sort of the, the native history uh, of the Florida landscape. But you've got um, ranch land and timber industry. Uh, you know, we grow peanuts and tomatoes and uh, all, all sorts of crops, sugarcane uh, throughout the landscape in Florida. So uh, agriculturally, it's a, it's a very diverse state.
0: Yeah, I don't think people realize how much is actually produced in Florida. I mean, we think about the beach towns, but um, I was reading, it looks like there's about a million and a half cattle on five million acres of land, give or take, in Florida, which kind of struck me.
1: Florida is a a very big cattle-producing state, and um, one of the things that I think is not very well known is most of the cattle ranching is – Done by cowboys on horseback here. Yeah. Uh, so you know you see this out west sort of image, uh, this culture and character uh, in in the ranchlands of Florida, and it's a it's a beautiful sort of iconic picture of, of cattle cattle ranching. In, in fact, the, the the founder of our um, organization, Carlton Ward Jr., uh, he's an eighth generation Floridian. And in the 1840s, his family came down here and started cattle ranching in Florida, which to me wow. is just remarkable. Wow. Yeah, that really is. Yeah.
0: Um, so you're working with these, with these ranchers and agriculturists pretty extensively to try to put together this connectivity. Is that right?
1: Yeah, well, you know, uh, you talk about these multi-generational ranch lands, uh, you're talking about people who know the land well, do I mean, really well and and care for it uh, their 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 lives are spent on horseback uh sp- spending time out there with the wildlife sun up to sundown um managing their herds and these people love the land and the landscape and uh so yeah we absolutely we absolutely work with them uh, and we we appreciate what they've conserved through their generations of, of working the land and uh, those those privately held working lands really represent the biggest piece of the missing conservation puzzle in that 18 million acre landscape. I mean if if we aren't valuing what they've preserved and conserved and if we're not recognizing the compatibility of horseback cattle ranching in Florida um, then we're not represent, we're not recognizing what it's going to take to save it. So.
0: Yeah, those folks know the land better than anyone, man. I love yeah. meeting people like that. Um, you know, I some of your videos online of the uh, the expeditions, which I wanted to ask you about, that you all undertake, show some pretty awesome footage of, uh, of wild Florida that yeah. is not regularly uh, seen, I think. Uh, I, I did get to spend a little bit of time in Ocala a few years back as part of a, a landscape class, actually, And uh, it was incredible, man, the scale of that place and the, you know, you've got this big, you know, uh, is it National Forest or State?
1: Ocala National Forest. National Forest. Right. But
0: then you've got military exercises going on. Yeah. You got um, pretty active management of the timber there and prescribed burning and really fascinating from a sort of series of inputs and just like the mapping that place. Um, I was really struck by it. And all the people that are surrounding it as well, like you said, just densely surrounded by a growing population.
1: Yeah, yeah. You you mentioned the uh, military installments. Uh, there are a lot of military installments in Florida, and uh, that's one thing I think probably a lot of folks don't recognize the compatibilities there. There's a there's a program called Sentinel Lands, and that Sentinel Land and Landscape program. I don't know how many there are in the nation, but there are two Sentinel landscapes identified in Florida. And we're the only state with two Sentinel land programs. And what this is, is is acknowledging the compatibility of military operations and military readiness with conservation. And uh, they identify this buffer area around the base that they need to safeguard for things like um, dark skies. Uh, a lot of the military operations depend on having a dark sky atmosphere to be able to uh, do their exercises and so we work closely together trying to to maintain some of those compatibilities uh, the the landscapes that they operate in too need to remain wild they do a lot of prescribed burning and land management to uh, to, to maintain it and frankly quite a bit of really good endangered species protections work as well. So they're, they're good partners looking at, at, at buffering. And it's not, it's not a kind of recreational public access point, but uh, it it definitely serves a compatible purpose.
0: I love that coupling of, of uses. Is that um, budget coming out of, is that coming out of the defense fund? Like who's paying for that management?
1: It's uh, so on, on the um, air force bases like the avon park air force range is is the oldest sentinel land here uh yeah they have their own federal budget to manage and maintain their lands and then that uh, sentinel landscape goes into the private sector outside of the base and they work then again with with multiple uh partners public uh uh, private landowners public lands uh uh, that neighbor them um they're in the footprint of that sentinel land program around avon park air force range you have nature Conservancy property, you've got conservation easements held by private landowners, uh, and you've got towns and uh, you've got local local governments, county governments that uh, that again all sort of engage in in planning, trying to to make sure that 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 military facility uh, remains viable and that we don't do something inadvertently in our planning and, and landscape transition that would erode our ability to uh, to do that,
0: yeah. You mentioned conservation easements. Is that kind of your primary tool of the, the 18 million acres you mentioned of the Florida Wildlife Corridor? It looks like about half of that, a little more than half of that, is already conserved. Um, yeah. With the remaining 46 odd percent of that, you know, whatever that is, 9 million acres, 8, 8, 9 million acres that you've identified, are those private lands that you would like to try to put a lot of those under conservation easement? What's the. What's the tool bag here?
1: Yeah, um, conservation easements are definitely a really important tool. And uh, if, if you don't mind me sticking on one of the points you made there, mm-hmm. um, that 18 million acres, it is broken up into different, we, we would call it a conserved footprint of around 10 million acres. Um, okay. And that 10, 10 million acres of conservation land includes um, national and state and county and local uh, parks, um, preserves, forests, um, uh, refuges, all kinds of different designations that we put on things. Some of them have public access, some of them don't. And it also includes that private sector conservation easement piece. The, the bulk of it though is in fee simple acquisition by some um, government agency. And uh, that leaves in the 18 million acres, that leaves 8 million acres that do not have any kind of a conservation uh, designation at all. No easements, no protections, no ownership in in conservation. So that's the opportunity area that we work in. And um, to to put this in perspective, uh, the first piece of conservation property that I'm aware of in Florida was the Pelican Island National Wildlife Refuge, um, and that was, I believe, in 1903 or right around there. So. Wow. Uh, our our country, our state, uh, we've been investing in conservation land for over a century. And and what you what you have is this patchwork of phenomenal examples of wild Florida uh, all throughout the state that draw visitors from all over the world to come see. Um, you know, one one thing we haven't mentioned is the spring systems in Florida. Uh, mm. We have 171. Magnitude one and magnitude two springs just within the Florida Wildlife Corridor. The state's identified 30 outstanding Florida springs among that magnitude one uh, category. And 23 of those 30 are in the Florida Wildlife Corridor. Wow. So we we have this tremendous natural resource that, uh, that the public recognizes. I mean, we get millions of visitors every year that come to Florida. And, and hang out in our our state parks and visit our springs um, and that's a that's a revenue generator for these communities that really rely on that um, so so we have 10 million acres that we've been investing in for a hundred years and the quality of wildlife the quality of water and uh, the the native character of those landscapes is currently uh, Dependent upon the connectivity in the landscape i mean if you what one of the idioms we kind of operate off of here is a network of connected habitat is inherently more resilient than isolated patches are it's just inherently more resilient inherently more diverse capable of withstanding change and uh, uh disruptions and and if we lose the connections between that those state parks and national forests and the neighboring landscape and if we wall it off and make it an island over time it will degrade so i went yeah. down a little rabbit trail there dylan but the, the idea here is we, we've been valuing these lands we've been preserving these lands managing these lands in this patchwork uh, and uh if we if we don't acknowledge the uh the importance of the connections from one patch to the other uh, and and we end up losing that ranch, then we'll end up losing the the biodiversity benefits, the water quality benefits that that connection has. And yeah, back back to your your question, Um, conservation easements and fee simple acquisition are the two biggest tools in our toolbox. Um, It's less expensive to get a conservation easement for a piece of property that's in perpetuity. Um, and so that that makes it attractive for that reason Um, it also helps keep the land as a working land it keeps people employed and uh, the the dollars generated from the working activity there provides for the local economy Um, and our ranchers are often really really good stewards in terms of of managing and maintaining and doing prescribed burns invasive species management goals are a little different when you talk about a, a, a working land versus mm. a Parker preserve. So um, when you go to that fee simple, you're talking about treating all the invasive species and managing for native species as well. So that fee simple acquisition it costs more to purchase it and it costs more to manage it. Um, so we need to have a, a mixture.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. You know, talking about the, the habitat connectivity and the complexity, you've got a complex undertaking there with a really biodiverse state. Um, And like you described earlier, a lot of different landscape uh, ecologies happening there. I feel like um, it's, it's so crucial to, like you said, understand, even if, if, even if you don't understand how every single one of these places functions, and if you haven't spent a ton of time in each one of these, just kind of leaning on those, on that broader vision of connectivity and understanding how much more resiliency that provides is so crucial to your efforts. The, the threats to Florida that would inhibit that connectivity or, or diminish it even more, to me, seem to be population growth. you got a million people a year moving to Florida. Um, it's already pretty populated, like you said. Climate change, rising sea levels, invasive species, as we know, are a huge issue in Florida. What are, are there any things that I'm missing there in terms of threats to biodiversity?
1: Um, Well, there are, there are things that are tied to those that I think bear mentioning as well. Uh, When you talk about an increasing population, um, as population density increases and as communities pop up, it makes it harder to manage the land and do prescribed burning. Uh, So that's one Uh, withdrawals at, consumptive use of water is another. I mean, Colorado, you know that, you know, yeah. when you talk about uh, aquifers and protecting your aquifers and your water um, here, here as communities dip more wells into the aquifer, you end up with saltwater intrusion issues and in that. So there's, there's another one. Um, mm. And, you know, there, there are some, I think really interesting nuances to um, the connectivity and um uh, hurricanes are a a, a phenomenon that Florida's is used to but as as you look at hurricanes in light of uh fragmentation and uh, increased intensity and in that um there's some some neat little questions that pop up if you don't if you don't mind i'll, I'll tell you a little story about uh, uh, an observation that i was faced with Following Hurricane Irma, um, love it. Just a few a few years back, um, I was uh, the, at the time the director of the Corkscrew Swamp Sanctuary uh, that the National Audubon Society yeah. ma- maintains and manages in uh, Southwest Florida, and uh, it's this beautiful old growth bald cypress forest. It's a it's the largest old growth bald cypress forest in the world, uh, and yeah. it's just really phenomenal landscape and habitat and. Um, this Hurricane Irma comes in and uh, just knocks, defoliates the the cypress forest. You know, I go out the day after the hurricane and, and take a look at the cypress forest, and it's it's nearly void of any any needles in these cypress wow. needles. And um, so it was a stark, obvious miss there, and it happened to be at a time of year when um, you would get this emergence of uh, this this caterpillar called the cypress looper caterpillar and these caterpillars would come out uh, in the in the fall and they would defoliate the the trees anyway i mean they would be munching on these these uh, these trees and um because the needles were already gone we didn't have this big pulse of cypress looper caterpillar and those caterpillars are really important for uh, migratory birds so you've got this migration of of warblers that come down and just feast and gorge on these cypress looper caterpillars uh, and do that before they head south for the for the winter into central america and south america now this food source is is absent because of this hurricane and um i i was really curious to know what what are the connections sort of landscape connections there If, if 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 we have more frequent and more intense storms like that, what's that gonna to do to uh, migration impacts over time, yeah. all based on this, this little little caterpillar. So anyway, That's lots of interesting connections there.
0: I love that kind of stuff, man. I love the, the observations of, you know, I talked about you can't know all these places intimately, but you did get to learn uh, corkscrew pretty intimately. I, I've never been there, but I was just learning about it. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about that uh, landscape so uh,
1: in the aftermath of world war ii uh rebuilding europe became you know pretty pretty important and we um we ended up in, in the us shipping a lot of lumber over to um to provide for the timber needs in, in europe to help rebuild it and um white pine uh white pine forests had been pretty extensively logged out and pressure then switched to cyprus uh and um as a as a as a result of that um they were looking for these big big cypress stands and eventually they uh, most of the easily accessible cypress stands had been logged out so uh some some time went by and there were two really deep peat strands that you know you'd lose a tractor in trying to go out there and, and log those things yeah. so um the fakahatchee strand and the corkscrew strand were kind of ignored for a while but eventually uh techniques developed and the price of timber uh, rose enough to it became profitable to to log the the, the really deep peat uh, cypress in the fac, Fakahatchee and the, the corkscrew. Uh, and they took the Fakahatchee out first, went from south to north and and pretty much depleted the, the Fakahatchee strand of the old growth timber minus a, a little patch here and there. Uh, and then they started on the corkscrew. And uh, this happened to be... Uh, the corkscrew swamp piece happened to be the home of the largest nesting colony of wood storks and a mega wading bird colony as well and so audubon got involved and said hey you know let's save this let's save this old growth forest uh for the sake of the birds and um money was raised to purchase what ended up being about an 18, 800 acre patch uh the last largest wow. remaining stand in the country uh and uh, uh really the driver there was let's save it for the for the storks and the egrets and the herons so kind of a, a neat result and really great trees
0: yeah reading about that a little bit it was a couple things that struck me was that um you know like you said that the storks were kind of the charismatic species that a lot of people were focusing on and the cypress but when you all went out there and did kind of a biological inventory It was pretty stunning what was found, you know, 56 different species supported by this cypress tree, I think that you all identified between reptiles, lichens, beetles, all the different animals that are depending on this, um, you know, this tree and this, this landscape, just going back to that interconnectivity, it's like nothing exists in a vacuum in nature.
1: Yeah. The, the, uh, one of the most beloved plants in fact in fact after after hurricane irma by the way um, we had people calling from all over to ask us did the super ghost orchid survive the storm you know the, the ghost orchid at corkscrew there's there's one in this one particular tree that's far enough away from the boardwalk trail that we can actually train a spotting scope up in the tree to, to uh to share this rare orchid with with visitors um in places where they're close to the ground they get poached so uh so corkscrew is known for this beloved ghost orchid and and um you know, the the microclimate that is supported by this old growth cypress forest really does encourage diversity and there's a lot we don't know about some of these special places so um, the idea of habitat fragmentation Um, is putting a whole lot of pressure on little patches of of land where those plant communities don't have the kind of connectivity to um, adjust to a changing climate, Uh, changing uh, salinity gradients in the water, changing hydro periods as rainfall uh, levels and timing changes. And part of the idea of connectivity is to um, not just not just preserve the pathway for the Florida panther and the Florida black bear, but also to look at places in the landscape where we can preserve the ability of plant communities to migrate up and down hill, up and down gradients of temperature, salt, fire, water. Um, And and again, there aren't a lot of places you can do that with a population uh, that's already here in the state. Yeah. you know
0: it seems that it becomes a couple thoughts it becomes increasingly difficult to manage invasives let's say when your water cycle is disrupted and your hydro periods are are off and now the plants that need water or need less water are getting out competed by something foreign that um, shouldn't even be able to to live there if the army corps hadn't you know (laughs) done whatever they did and disrupted the water cycle so it's like you have to find the systemic issues there and and i don't know revert back the uh, disrupt some of that you know how do you tackle those kinds of
1: complex issues it's 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 really tough to do that in a in a place where um people get used to things being the way they are um you're talking about Florida and the population. We have a thousand people a day moving to Florida in that ballpark. Um, And everybody that moves here sort of establishes a baseline. This is Florida, the way they see it that, that day. And they don't have the perspective of history of what was once there. So when you go to restore something from the way it is today to what it was sometime back in the past, where it had a, more ecologically beneficial uh, um, function, it changes things for people, and not everybody is is appreciating that that change. So, part of our challenge is to educate people about what used to be here and to acknowledge that uh, change is at times painful. Uh, there, there's a there's there's winners and losers in almost every decision you make in, in a crowded landscape like you have in Florida yeah and uh there was a I mentioned Carlton Ward's uh, predecessors coming down here in 1840 um in 1847 the U.S. Treasury Secretary commissioned a guy named Buckingham Smith to do a reconnaissance to South Florida in the Everglades to answer two questions can we drain the Everglades God. and if we can drain it should we and, and Buckingham Smith spent months down here um, visiting the landscape, paddling around in the Everglades and in the big Cypress, interviewing people that were mostly associated with the military effort uh, down here, uh, engineers and, and, and uh, commanders and that, that had uh, personal experience on the ground. And he writes his report back to Congress the following year in 1848. And you flip through that, that report in the first couple of pages, He describes the Everglades and the Big Cypress in such poetic language. Uh, It's just just really soaring rhetoric about the beauty of the Everglades. And and it surprised me when I read that because I know the rest of the story. Yeah. Um, And and you hear him talking about how it inspires awe in him. And it's like no, no other place he's ever visited in the United States. Another page or two, you flip. And this statement jumped out at me. But the practical man, and then he continues to say, the practical man will see the Everglades as worse than worthless in a mm-hmm. place where, you know, it's a denzin for reptiles and alligators. And, and uh, he, he encourages Congress by saying any statesman who accomplishes the goal of draining the Everglades will be a hero in their generation, and in fact, for all posterity. And this wasn't tongue-in-cheek. This wasn't done with malice. He appreciated the beauty, but he didn't understand the ecological value and benefits, nor how it worked, nor what the future might hold if you do drain it. So uh, with the best of intentions, but without the knowledge we needed uh, to understand it, our, our leadership took it upon themselves to follow through with that recommendation and work to drain the Everglades. And and, and here, uh, I think it was, it took it 30 years to really make a dent in it in the 1880s. And you fast forward to hundred years later in the 1980s, we're already initiating the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan to try to restore what hundred years ago we were trying to drain because we thought it would be the best thing for the country. Uh, yeah. So, you know, put layering that on top of the challenge we have for today. I think it's important to recognize that most of us wanna be good stewards but we don't always know how. I think most of the people that I sit around and talk to regardless of what stakeholder group they represent, they they really wanna look after their grandkids and their great grandkids. And and they wanna make decisions today that are gonna leave Florida better than when they found it. But not everybody has the understanding, like Buckingham Smith did, of what's the the outcome of the decisions they're making today? How will their decision to build this here versus there, or build like this instead of like that, how will that unfold uh, generations to come? And so part of our challenge is to, to acknowledge people will make the right decisions most of the time if they have enough information. And so we're trying to provide the science and the ecological understanding and appreciation while also recognizing these typically aren't bad guys on the other sides of these decisions. They're, they're people that want to make the right, right moves. We just need to give them the, the right tools to do it. Yeah, man, that's, uh, it's so
0: hard to make judgment calls on, um, on history, but it's really hard to comprehend some of the decisions that got us where we are. Like, how could yeah. you ever think, knowing what we know now, though, of course, right. how could you not, how could you think that draining the Everglades is a good idea? But, you know, again, it, it, we are where we are. I, I love those early descriptions of, like, you know, some of those those beautiful descriptions of the Mountain West or what mm-hmm. what inspired the first national parks to be created by people who had never even visited them. Uh, who just read someone's account of, of Yellowstone or Yosemite. And um, I find myself now uh, being thankful for the treacherous places. I, I was thinking okay. some of those places are the last to be developed. They're the last that, that somehow withstood all this development and clear-cutting because they were so, like you are talking about Corkscrew, it was so difficult to get in there. It's just like, all right, we'll just leave it alone. And it's like, thank goodness for... Okay places like that that were just so difficult for humans to inhabit that they were able to survive. I read uh, in researching about corkscrew that when John James Audubon actually visited there, he wasn't a big fan.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it it, it was a tough landscape. I mean, you look at the survey lines that go through corkscrew and uh, it doesn't line up there. I mean, those surveyors came in from the east and they came in from the west. And they just drew a line the rest of the way. They didn't. They didn't walk through that that deep, deep stuff. Um, Thank goodness, right? Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. Otherwise, yeah. it might not be there. Absolutely. I love it. Well, um, tell me a little bit more about some of the you know some of the support, some of the opposition to the corridor. Kind of the a little bit about the political situation. You know, what's the what's the temperature reading there in
1: Florida? Well. Uh, we were gratified and a little shocked to see uh, how, how much support came for a bill, the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act, which passed that last legislative session here in Florida. Um, It it unanimously went through committee, uh, through the house, through the Senate, and was signed by the governor. There was not a single vote against recognizing the value of the Florida Wildlife Corridor Uh, and uh, that, it's not very common uh, to, to have something like that in as polarized a place uh as, as the united states is politically these days so that was a that was um affirmation that we all pretty much get the the value of it on some level and it's a lot tougher when it comes down to um, looking at the lines on the map and starting to make plans uh and uh there, there also are limits to what we know about um, fixing the system and what the, what the returns on an investment in conservation are in certain patches. And there are misconceptions about uh, what a corridor is from community to community. And a, as an example, let's just take panthers. Okay. Panthers, the Florida state mammal. Uh, it's this iconic, charismatic, Large animal that uh, people people get emotional about, Um, and and they they also um, they also eat calves at times. You know, I mean, uh, there's a depredation uh, reality on the landscape in living with a large predator like that, and uh, so you have you have ranchers that have borne the cost of panther depredation for generations. Uh, and not been compensated for, for that. Uh, uh, and they just, they love, they love the wildlife and love the panther and want to live in compatibility with that animal. But they all, also recognize that there's a cost to it and a cost to them. And so figuring out ways to recognize, acknowledge, and, and repay uh, depredation uh, because we're trying to protect this iconic cat, that's a, that's a hurdle we need to figure out. Uh, f- for the sake of the stewards there on, on the land. And uh, so that, that can get sticky at times. Then you move farther north, I mean, the Florida panther uh, is is doing pretty well south of the Caloosahatchee River, south of Lake Okeechobee. Okay. Uh, uh, we, we have, we've established a population there that um, is pretty solid. I mean, let, let's just say that it's really at carrying capacity. You can't fit more panthers in down there very easily. And as a result, you've got some panthers moving north. And those panthers, some some males mostly across the Clusahatchee River. We've had a couple of females uh, go north as well, but we've not had a single successful litter of panthers recruit to breeding age. So we don't have an established population anywhere north of the Clusahatchee River. But you do see, you, you talk to ranchers, you talk to hunters, that put out their game cams and they capture photos of Panthers on their game cams. And they're thrilled and they share among among their buddies uh, these shots of these Panthers, which they love to see. But you go across to the gated community uh, and the idea of having a Panther in the neighborhood or a black bear in the neighborhood, to some people it's a worry. And they they worry uh, by protecting the Florida Wildlife Corridor, are we inviting conflict down the road? Uh, and and so that's a that's a point where education is needed. Um, the the Florida Wildlife Corridor, it exists right now. I mean, it's here. It's not something we're building. It's something we're trying to protect. Mm. Uh, we're we're trying to secure the pathways that panthers and bears normally would would use for dispersal. Uh, and, and and so if you don't protect those pathways, what might happen is that that bear that panther is gonna come up to a road that used to not be there or a neighborhood that used to not be there. And instead of being able to go through under forest canopy, they're going to have to find another route. They're gonna get diverted onto roadways where there's a, a risk for traffic impacts or into a neighborhood where they're gonna encounter somebody's pet. Or a bowl of dog food or cat food or a garbage can that smells awfully tempting. Uh, and so you're going to start to have these conflicts, not because we saved the corridor, but because we didn't. And and so that's that's one of the educational points we're trying to drive home is we're not we're not creating a highway of of animals through your neighborhood. We're preserving those that exist so that they right. won't go in there. So
0: yeah, the conflict thing is always a weird one. It's something we deal with a lot out here, as you can imagine, with Oh yeah. you know, black bears and moose and coyotes and you know, some of us are are happy that they're around and we're a little bit more aware when we're letting our dog out at night. What is what is conflict? You're just talking about a natural encounter that has been happening for eons. People have been yeah. encountering predators and other animals forever. But now the dynamic has changed where it's it's a bad situation for, for the animals a lot more so than it used to be. And so, yeah, it's a tough one. It's, um, but I do understand when you look at the numbers of of vehicle collisions and things like that, it really is staggering how much, you know, how much conflict there really is. I don't know. That's a tough one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Putting it, putting it in the economic terms helps a lot of people. I think, uh, understand the stakes a little bit better most people would say i love panthers i just don't want them here i'd rather they were yeah. over there right, right. and and uh, um you can you can go into the fact that they're, they're the florida panther there's never been um there's never been an, an attack of a florida panther and a person um wow. a pet uh livestock yes but, but they're, they're a fairly shy, less <laughs> less aggressive than sometimes you get somewhere out, out west. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's one thing that, that people don't understand. But I think coming back to this idea that these are people moving in from somewhere else uh, and uh, that often uh, we get a lot of folks from the East Coast, uh, a lot of people from Ohio coming down to Florida and moving into a neighborhood and again their baseline is established a, as they arrive and they they have no idea that there's a male panther that just walked past their preserve 3 nights ago and nobody ever saw it you know yeah. but it shows up on a game camera or a, a Fish and wildlife conservation commission camera somewhere down the road and it's got a collar on it or it's got a tag or you know it's, it's, it's a no it's a known individual and and no one will think about that until there's a there's a collision on a road and that panther uh, is killed and then you see there's a panther that was 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 born and raised and tagged in ocala Slough and ends up 30 miles from the Florida Georgia border hit by a car so we know these animals are moving through the landscape and, sure. and we're living in compatibility with them we're just living off in ignorance it's amazing how far they can get too yeah I love yeah, we, I
0: love seeing that
1: we um and another, another piece of sort of that panther picture comes into um, the enthusiasm people have for what is wild. And um, five years ago, in March, there was um, a volunteer walking the corkscrew boardwalk. It's a two-mile loop, two-and-a-quarter-mile loop boardwalk. Okay. And there's a shortcut loop in there, too. And this volunteer, he, um, he encounters a, a male, a young male panther on the boardwalk looking through the railing out into the wet prairie he took some video and then he decided not to disturb the panther and he just turned back around and is walking back in towards the visitor center and he encounters a woman from ohio Uh, and he says ma'am you might not want to go the long route there's a there's a panther on the boardwalk you'll probably want to take the shortcut route to avoid that cat (laughs) and i imagine there are some people that would have just turned around and gone gone home uh, but most people that go to Corkscrew go there for the wild. That's what they're there for. So instead of turning around, she got her iPhone out. And she's walking that boardwalk with this eager anticipation of hoping to get a glimpse of this elusive Florida panther. Mm. Uh, and and this cat, she, she catches it coming around a bend. Uh, and you can hear her voice on the video that's since gone viral five years ago. You can see the panther. You can hear in her voice, oh, oh, no way. And this cat, you can you start to hear the paws padding on the boardwalk deck. And this cat sees her and might be anthropomorphizing a bit here, but that cat is thinking, what do I do? And that cat doesn't turn around. It doesn't jump over the boardwalk. It just goes faster and it's coming towards her and the boardwalk's five feet wide. Oh and this God. cat just decides... Oh, I got to get out of here. And it races past her. And you can hear the claws scrabbling on the deck as it races past her. And she somehow manages to keep that cat in frame the whole way by her. She could have touched it. This male Florida panther running right by her. And the video, of course, got picked up by local news. It went, went viral on YouTube. And in the, in the months past that, people flocked to corkscrew, hoping to repeat that, hoping to wow. see a cat. And, and you would hear them on the back deck of the Visitor Center talking about Florida Panthers, expressing gratitude for the fact that Corkscrew was saved and safe and that Panthers had a home there. And, and while that's good and that's true, it also belies the fact that Corkscrew is far inadequate to protect even a single Panther, let mm-hmm. alone a population. Uh, corkscrew, as big as it is, is one-tenth the size of the home range of one male cat. Wow. So To to protect one male cat, you need 10 corkscrew swamps. So that's why we can't just let conservation end at your property boundary. Uh, You need to recognize what the life history of that animal and their population requires. If we're going to love wildlife, we need to have an understanding. And that sort of feeds into this Da Vinci quote, which I love. And I'm probably paraphrasing a little bit here, but uh, Da Vinci says one has no right to love or hate that which one does not first adequately understand great love springs from great knowledge of the beloved object and if one knows it but little one can love it but little if at all so we get guys like buckingham smith that go down to the everglade and say man this is beautiful but it's worthless Or we get people that go in and take a sunset shot over some magnificent landscape and take a picture and put it on their screensaver or share it on Instagram. And they love it, but their love is not born of an understanding of what it's gonna take to keep it around for future generations. And that's what the Florida Wildlife Corridor really is trying to do is to connect people's innate curiosity and appreciation for the wild, their love of the beauty and the aesthetic the knowledge of what's it going to take to keep it around for our great grandkids so that's yeah that's what the panther does for me that's That's beautiful first
0: of all i got to look up that video i've never seen that yeah it's good but that that notion of intimacy and, and love for landscape really fits in with kind of what i'm trying to do here and the people i'm speaking to i keep coming back to a few a few core kind of principles that are becoming more and more clear. One of them is, let the people who have gained that intimacy and who who have that love, um, have a, a strong voice at the table for decision making for these places. I've never been to the landscape that you're describing. You know, I've never been to Corkscrew. Yeah. I would never presume to make a decision for the future of that place, but that's kind of where we're at with our um, our centralized governing process. Sometimes places where people have never been, never had a chance to fall in love with and understand, um, those places they're, they're in the hands of the wrong people sometimes. And, um, you know, that's, I'm all about giving power back to the, you know, the people who should be making those decisions who have developed that, um, that understanding of place. You know, it's something that Leopold, showed the way on uh with with his writings you know he literally wrote an almanac (laughs) it's like here's what's happening month by month here's why i love this play here's all these observations of of the characters and the it's here's the stage it's just um it's very hard to duplicate that kind of love and care without spending an immense amount of time somewhere
1: oh yeah i I, I, you're referring, I'm sure, to the Sam County Almanac, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that book. Um, I've, I've drawn on uh, the first chapter in there where, where Leopold says there are two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. <laughs> One of those is you come to think your breakfast comes from the grocery store and the second that your heat comes from the furnace. And yeah. to me, that book, it just epitomizes the, the pitfalls and if as we get disconnected from from the landscape, we don't understand how our quality of life is directly connected to the quality of the ecosystem around us. And, and we're at risk of making bad decisions because we're we're divorced from that connection. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh the local people who know the land and love the land need a seat at the table. They, they might not understand all of them, the economics, uh, and we need to get that down there, too. Uh, and and the planning and the coordination and the timelines. But those voices need a need a seat for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, it, it's not perfect. Um, There are probably there are people who are in, I bet, citrus production, who are, uh, you know, their operations taking quite a toll, they've got a massive monocrop situation going on right next to a sensitive watershed. It's like, their vested interest is not probably going to be in the uh the interest of the wildlife or the the ecology but they do know that land got to give it to them you know it's uh and they should be listened to um but it's 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 complex man i uh i appreciate the the kind of work that you guys are doing in this landscape scale of thinking it's i've got i've had the pleasure of speaking to a few people doing similar work in um, in Montana and in South America with the uh, Tompkins Conservation And, um, these are the type of projects that I get really, really excited about. So I'm happy to kind of uh, spread the word a little bit.
1: Well, Dylan, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on and giving some attention to the Florida Wildlife Corridor. It has been a pleasure.
0: Likewise, uh, as we wrap up here, Jason, can you tell me about, um, kind of where people can find your work, how they can support you if they're in Florida, you know, where, where should they go? Stuff like that. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, the, the best place to look for us is on social media uh, we have a facebook page florida wildlife corridor um, and instagram account uh, and uh, we also have our website which is floridawildlifecorridor.org um, and from that website you can get a link to some of the expedition films you have mentioned um, we are probably best known in the state for doing those films. That's where most people have, have heard about us. And, uh, uh, the last couple we've done are short films. So you don't have to invest a whole hour in it. Uh, you can get a 15, 17 minute clip of just some really cool wild places. And, uh, we'd encourage people to, to take a, take a look at us there.
0: Yeah. I watched one last night. They're really cool. Yeah. they really, like you said, um, concise and, and beautiful uh, films about kind of you all, your team exploring a piece of this corridor and
1: kind of showing why it's valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it and uh, there'll be another one coming out here in another month or two.
0: Cool, man. Well, yeah, it's great to meet you and I appreciate all your work out there, man. Keep it up.
1: Thanks Dylan. All
0: right. Bye Jason. Bye.